We're in a fun series called Small Beginnings, Big Futures. We're talking about this idea of bringing the power of life transformation through following Christ to the next generation, to our kids and our grandkids. And this morning, this series brings us to a text of scripture found in Daniel chapter 1. So if you have, do have Bibles this morning, you can open them to Daniel chapter 1. If you've got some note paper on the way in, you're welcome to take notes. If you like filling in blanks, the whole thing's a blank for you today. Big old blank. We're going to talk about the whole chapter this morning, but I would love to start us by reading verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of the, or chief of the, his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace." He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave new names to them, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, this morning we pause as we open your scriptures to remind ourselves that you, the God of the universe, meet us in a powerful way when you open your mouth and speak to us. We pray this morning that as we hear the words from you from this text, that you would use them to pierce our own spirits, our own souls, and open us up to what you have for us. As we read the story of these kids getting pulled into Babylon to learn to serve there in a a very different place than Jerusalem. We, We think of our own kids, our own grandkids, our own lives as we as kids, some of us, are leaving our parents' households, leaving our schools, leaving our communities, maybe going off this fall to college or into the workforce or wherever we go to to serve you there, and, and yet we know that this world that we live in is, is very different than our parents' house a lot of times. That this world our kids are entering has different viewpoints than we taught our kids. And though there's a time for our kids to leave us and go into the world, we pray. We pray right now for our kids, for our grandkids, for our great-grandkids, for ourselves if we are kids, that you would be with this next generation as they step into the real world, as it were. Remind us 
that as parents, our job is to train up our kids in the way they should go. And we pray that when they're old, they will not depart therefrom. We pray, like we learned last week, that you would give us the resolve to train up our kids in the ways of the Lord, that you would make our houses environments where our kids are learning about you and flourishing there and, and as prepared as they can be to step into a place that is different as they go and navigate life on their own with our voices echoing in the back of their minds along the way. Pray for my kids this morning. For the kids represented in this room, the kids going to family camp. I pray that you would be with them and walk with them as they enter into the world out there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know parenting never ends. But there's that scary moment in life where kids leave your house and move into somebody else's house. Right? They leave your house and move in with their husband or their wife someday. Or they leave your house and move into some college dorm. Or they leave your house and move into the work world. Or they come back to your house and then they leave again. Right? You wonder in that moment, are they, are they ready for that? And if we do as parents, what Pastor Larry talked about last week, and we train up our kids, and we help them understand the scriptures, and we show them who God is, and we make our household an environment where they can grow and flourish in those things, then we send them out, and we pray, and we hope that it sticks. Do you remember the moment that you realized for the first time that your kid was someday going to leave you? And with our oldest, like, we've thought that since, like, he was two years old. Like, he was just ready to move out. He was ready to go independent. You know, the, as your kids are small, you know everything they do, you think they're like the smartest, brightest kid in the world. They're like, my kid just ate cereal with a spoon by himself, right? No kid has ever done that before. You would not believe what my kid did. He walked, right? He walked. He walked on his two feet and he didn't fall. He fell a couple times, but then he didn't fall, right? He walked. Who walks? My kid walks. And then as your kid gets older, you start seeing them do these things that impress you, but in a different way. And one of our kids won a, a, some kind of contest a couple weeks ago, which at first we thought was just kind of like a drawing, and I think it kind of was, but he won this uh, award from the sanitary district for a little blurb that he wrote about recycling. Right? And so we said, well, well, what was it? He's like, I don't even know what I wrote. Everyone had to write something. I'm like, okay. So then we called the thing and said, how did he win? They're like, well, we kind of chose the cards at random, and if they kind of met up with... <laughs> With, uh, with our beliefs and worldview here at the recycling center, we pushed him through and they, they won this award. So he wins this award, right? And, and so we're just kind of joking about it. Like he probably just wrote like, I love recycling or drew a picture of a blue trash can or something on this little three by five card. And then this weekend, we get a thing in the mail that actually showed the thing that he wrote for this contest. And, and we're reading it and we're expecting to kind of make fun of it because it's jokey. But then as I'm reading this little blurb he wrote about recycling, I'm thinking, this is really good. Right, like he's talking about like the world impact it would have if all of us chose to make some different choices in the way that we deal with our trash. And I'm thinking, who wrote this? Is this my kid who wrote this? And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, he's going to be okay in the real world someday. <laughs> have you had those moments in your kid's life where they bring something out and it impresses you? You know, as, as Katie here in the middle was leading worship this morning, she's, I think she's a senior in high school. I'm thinking, I wonder what her parents thought the first time they heard her sing like that whoa, who, who taught her that? I don't know, maybe her dad sings or her mom sings or something. But Kids do something, you think. That, 
there's something in you that maybe I put there, maybe I didn't. God put it there. And you're going to do well someday. And really, for all of us, the dream, the hope, is that our kids are going to rise up and do well someday. That they will move out of our houses someday. That they'll move out of our houses and move into a place that is good. That they'll find a good spouse someday, maybe. Or they'll find a good job someday. Or go to a good school someday. Or, or be a star athlete someday. Or whatever it is that we're training our kids up to be and achieve in this world. We're hoping someday... They're going to step out into that world and, and be successful there and turn some heads there and get recruited into something good there. And when we read the book of Daniel, it starts in chapter 1 here with, with these kids, these 12 to 14-year-old kids, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, we know them as, these kids from, from Israel who had done well in their parents' household. It says Nebuchadnezzar came looking for kids who had character. And kids who were attractive. It's like, okay, that's a plus. Kids who were smart. You know, the Hebrew says not just smart, but, but wise. And not just smart, but smart in a lot of different areas. And not just smart in a lot of different areas, but, but these kids had to know how to apply knowledge in different areas. They didn't just know about chemistry. They knew how to do it. They didn't just know about astronomy. They knew how to do it. They didn't just know about writing. They could do it, and they had the wisdom to know how to apply it in different scenarios. These folks from Babylon came in looking for these Rhodes scholars who were great at everything, and they were well put together and strong and had resolve and character who might be qualified to be recruited, kind of enslaved, but also recruited into the nation of Babylon. I don't know what Daniel's parents thought when he was one of the kids who was chosen to go to Babylon. On one hand, you've got to be proud of him, right? Like he meets that criteria. But on the, other, on the other hand, the fact that their kid was successful meant that he was being recruited by this pagan king to come and enter into service in a pagan land and be far away from his household, hundreds of miles away from his household, in this place who was filled with people that were far from God in every way, and he would be at the center of it. You know, the hard thing about raising kids who are going to do well in this world is that eventually the kids that you raise are going to turn some heads in this world and be recruited into places that are very different than your home. They're going to be recruited to college campuses that are very different than your home. They're going to be recruited into corporate environments that are very different than the, the morality in your home, the worldview in your home. They're going to be called upon by the world to enter into the world and serve in a place that's very dissimilar to the belief set that you instilled in them so diligently when they were children. And that's just the part of growing up But it's scary. And the question as we look at this text is, what do we need to instill in our kids so that they will thrive in that environment? What does this next generation need to have in them so that they will not succumb to the worldview that they get in this world or fall in their faith when they get to the world or lose their faith when they go off into college but, but hold fast to what we taught them in our homes? And we know that there is no magic formula we pray and we hope and we do our best. And yet as we look at the life of Daniel, as he gets pulled into Babylon, we'll see some things that were in him that maybe his parents put in him, maybe just the Lord put in him, that helped him to thrive 
when he stepped into Babylon. When I first became a Christian, I was a junior in high school, and so the the next thing that was kind of on my life radar was applying to college. So really the whole college application process for me was the first thing that I ever had to do with with Christianity in mind. How is this going to affect my faith? You know, I didn't know all that stuff about, oh, Christians die in college. I didn't know any of that. I, I thought I was going to be fine, and I guess I, I was okay. But I, I was applying for these schools and trying to figure out, okay, how do I incorporate my new belief set into the decision I make for college? This is an embarrassing story, but I'm going to tell you. So I, back in those days, you'd have to, like, call the admissions office, and they'd mail you a packet. Right? And so, you know what I'm talking about. So uh, mail comes every day, the postman puts in the thing. And so we'd get this mail, and I'd open it up, and I got two of them, right? One, I thought, I want to kind of stay local, but I want to move out of my house, and so give me 25 minutes, right? So uh, one was from Stanford, and one was from the University of California, Berkeley, Cal. Go Bears indeed. <laughs> Spoiler alert on that one. So I, I, I open up the booklets, and I'm thumbing through them, and, I, and I'm trying to decide, how am I supposed to decide which one of these I should apply for? And my parents were amazing, right? One was going to cost like 40 grand a year. One was like four at the time. My parents didn't tell me that, so I didn't know. I'm just looking at these things like they're two equals. I could have chose Stanford, and my parents would say, heck no, right? But I'd, they didn't tell me that at that point. So I'm looking through the booklets, and I'm going through the Stanford booklet. This is where it gets embarrassing. And I'm looking at the place where it talks about all the extracurricular activities that are offered to students on campus. And they're trying to draw me in. I see pictures of kids playing volleyball and kids rock climbing and kids doing community service, right? And then I saw this poster on the back of their, like, student activity center, and it said, Hash Club this Thursday, 6 p.m. And I'm like, what's a hash club? That sounds like a drug thing to me, right? Do they have drug clubs at Stanford? Right? I didn't know that a hash club is like some kind of like rock climbing thing. I don't know, right? But I'm reading this and I'm like sweating and I'm thinking like, is this what Stanford is like? This like, this drug den of drug users and they promote it and, and I close the book and I'm thinking, as a Christian, I can't be in that kind of environment. I'm going to Berkeley, right? <laughs> so I, I, I think I'm the only person who ever chose to go to Berkeley because I wanted to escape the drug culture of Stanford. And so... <laughs> to telegraph I went. And for me, that was the first time in my life that I ever had to start wrestling with ideas in the context of how is this decision, how is this world I'm entering into, how is it going to interact with the faith that I'm claiming to hold now as a follower of Jesus? How do I do that? I never thought about that before. And people say that colleges are trying to like brainwash kids. I don't know if colleges are trying to brainwash kids, but But there's something about going to a place for multiple years and sitting there under teaching and teachers with all a similar worldview who are trying to teach you the ways that they see the world and you're sitting there in the dining halls and you're eating together and you're moving together that that you can very easily start to assimilate into a culture that is very different than the culture that you found in your parents' household. And And I was starting to feel that in that moment. Now, whether or not the colleges in America are trying to brainwash our children That's what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do with Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar says, go and find the best and the brightest, the elite, the royal family of all of these places in Israel. They just conquered Jerusalem. Go and get these kids, the best kids, and bring them to me. He says, I'm going to train them up. The Hebrew word there is gadal. I'm going to grow these kids up. Normally in the Bible, Gadol is just a passive thing. Like, hey, we grow up. Your kids are going to grow up someday. He says, I'm going to grow your kids up. 
bring him to me for three years, and I'm going to teach him everything about the language of our land, about the literature of our land, about the worldview of our land. I'm going to teach him all that. I'm going to catechize your children in our culture's worldview. They're going to live in my place. They're going to eat from my table. He's describing discipleship into a Babylonian worldview. He says, go and get those kids. And after three years, we'll see if they've totally assimilated the Babylonian culture. We'll test them. And then the winners of this challenge will serve here in my court. It's scary stuff. That's not the picture you want in mind as you send your kids off to UCLA or St. Mary's or into the work world someday. We're going to train your kids. We're going to develop your kids. We're going to disciple your kids. Hand them to us. You know, we know that Daniel did fine. And that he came out on the other side actually really strong. That he went to Babylon. He went through the rigors. He, he, he was trained up by the king. And all of these different people had to learn these things. Daniel learned it better than the rest of them. He passed all the tests. He end, ended up in the king's court. He didn't lose his faith in the process. The question is, how? What character quality did he bring to the, to the foreign land that allowed him to stand firm? Well, it's the same character quality you're going to have to bring into the workplace to help you stand firm. The same quality your kids are going to have to bring into their lives to help them stand firm, to be able to thrive in the real world without distilling the faith that they came with. And the reason is in verse 8 here, you can look at this. It says, these kids went off to Babylon, but in verse 8, here's the verb, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He resolved. And if you are a note taker today, one thing you can write down is do not underestimate the power of resolve. Daniel was pulled into Babylon by a king who had definite plans for his future. And yet deep in the heart of Daniel, he had resolved that he would not lose his faith in the process. He set his heart. He, he almost like hardened his heart. He like hunkered down. He said, I, I'll learn the language, right? I'll take Babylonian. I'll learn the culture, right? I'll, I'll study the history of all their gods and beliefs said and all their mystical stuff that they teach. I'll learn it all in my brain. <laughs> but in my heart, in my soul, I'm not changing who I am as a person when I, when I get there. He went into Babylon with resolve. And one of the first things that I noticed when my kids were entering into school was that well, they were sponges, right? They were just absorbing everything that anyone would teach them. Right? Teach the kids something they, me- they memorize. Like, I don't know how these kids memorize this stuff. They're learning to read. They're learning to write. They're learning these math facts. My, my kids know-, know more about, like, biology and stuff than I do. They have all this knowledge about all these things. are just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing like sponges. And then that becomes the fear that they're going to go to college and start absorbing some stuff like sponges that you don't want in there. You kind of want to wring it out every once in a while. Like, get this stuff out of there. So somewhere between sponge children And the real world, we've got to learn how to incorporate this idea of resolve into the hearts of our kids to be able to have that filter to say, you know what, okay, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that. No, no, I'm not taking that. That's not true. Or I'm not doing that. That's that's not good. I've got to learn resolve. 
And I think sometimes we get scared for our kids, and so we try to figure out how to create this Christian bubble for them that they live in in our homes, and then, and then we send them to Christian colleges. They help them find jobs in these Christian nonprofits or in churches somewhere. Like, if we can just put this bubble over them and then kind of keep them in the bubble forever, they'll never have to learn resolve. They could just be sponges in Christian land forever, right? And that seems like a cool idea, except I don't think God has called us all to live in a Christian bubble, right? God sent Daniel into Babylon to be a game changer in the real world, to change the tide of a culture through a lofty position that he could only get into through learning and going with the program and succeeding and rising to the top over and over again. God needed a man like Daniel who had um, amazing character, amazing smarts, amazing wisdom, and amazing resolve in his faith. Because if Daniel would have risen to the top of Babylonian culture and lost his faith in the process, it would have been a waste. But Daniel went with resolve and decided to go hard into the real world and change the place by choosing not to be defiled in the process. It's a beautiful concept. But it's a little scarier in real life than it is on paper, right? Right, like you can go into the workforce and, and you can resolve that you're not going to compromise your ethics. But you might get fired, right, if you do that. You can go to school and resolve that you're not going to lose your Christian values as you engage on campus stuff. But there's a chance you're going to get ostracized from all your friends in the process. Daniel makes this decision. He says he resolves he's not going to eat from the king's table. He says, just give me vegetables, Anything that grows from seeds, I'll eat that. I'm not eating the meat. I'm not drinking the wine from the king's table. I'm resolved. I'm not going to defile myself. Give me my own diet. I don't need to eat the king's food. And the king's servant said, "Um, Daniel, I can bring that to the king, but I am scared of him. (laughs) When I go tell the king that you're refusing, that you're resolving to not eat from his table, he might have you killed. There's this idea that resolve takes, takes sacrifice, or at least the willingness to sacrifice. And Daniel was in there, and he wasn't just hard-headed. You know, sometimes I think resolve is those people who are just really angry all the time. They refuse to do anything, and they're just hunkering down. They're no fun to work with, right? It doesn't seem like Daniel's that guy. Daniel resolves that he's not going to defile himself, and then it says he went and asked permission. Hey, is it okay if I sit out on this assignment kind of violates my morality. Hey, would you mind if I, if I didn't work on this project? I'm not really okay with where the company's going here. Hey, hey, what do you think if I just held back from this event because I feel like I can't do that with a clear conscience because of my, my belief set or my values, right? He, he asks permission. He had resolve, but he asks permission. And they said, I'll ask permission, but you might get fired. Or in Daniel's day, you might get murdered for that. And Daniel says, well, That's what it takes. That's what's going to happen. But I'm not eating the food. Daniel had resolve. And Daniel had a willingness to sacrifice for what he believed in. I don't know if I would have the courage to do that. You know, I've wondered, why why wouldn't Daniel eat the meat? What's wrong with the meat? What's wrong with the wine, right? And so you look into the commentary. Some commentators say, well, it must have been like sacrifice to idols or maybe they believed it was infused with magic powers or something and he's making a moral stand. Maybe, maybe that's it, right? Maybe, he knew, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that Daniel said, no, you know what, I'm not going to eat that. And 
I'm not going to drink that. I'm not into that kind of stuff. That's weird. That's your cult stuff. I'm not into that stuff. I'm just going to, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to hit the books. I'm going to learn all you want me to learn. I'm not going to get weak. I'm still going to be strong, but I'm not eating that meat. Maybe, maybe it's because he had a, a moral opposition to the food itself. And the other option of why Daniel was resolved not to eat the meat was it could be Daniel was trying to paint a picture of saying, you know what, like, I'm silently protesting this whole thing. You kidnapped me. You brought me into Babylon. You want me to rise to the top of your society. And now you're trying to say that there's perks, right? I get to eat from your table. I get to drink the special royal wine. I get to party with you guys. We work hard during the day and we relax hard at night. It's like, but I, I'm, I'm painting a picture for you here that I'm here to work because you kidnapped me, but I'm not here to play. I'm not here to participate in Babylon. I'm here because my God has put me in Babylon, but it's, I'm not part of you. I'm different. You know, again, Daniel had this humble spirit about him. He's asking permission. He's being nice about these things, but in a sense, he's being subversive at the same time. I heard a professor one time say, you know, it's interesting. The Bible tells us that we should not love the world. But then it says that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to save the world. How do you do both of those things? He said, here's what I think is the difference. God loves the world with a redemptive love, not a participatory love. That we go into the world not because we're one of them and we're experiencing their systems and we want to join their worldview and we're all in with the world and we're going to college because we want to experience all of the college party life. That's not why we go into the world. We don't go as participants. We go as missionaries to redeem the place. And Daniel goes in and he's not that weirdo religious person who just sits there and says, I'm not learning this stuff. I'm not eating this stuff. I'm not doing any of this thing. Like, I'm here because I'm on mission for my God, right? He doesn't do it that way. He does well. Even in his eating habits, he gets stronger than everybody else eating meat and drinking wine all day. He learns more than anyone else. He understands more than anyone else. He rises to the top so when the king brings him back at the end and tests him against all the magicians and sorcerers in Babylon, Daniel and his friends are head and shoulders above the rest of them. He has succeeded. Right? It's like the kid who goes off into college and you're scared he's going to turn into a party animal or something. But he abstains from parties. He puts his head down. He studies. He builds great lifelong relationships with people. He gets to lead folks to Christ. He gets to have an amazing time. And he graduates or she graduates summa cum laude or whatever and is on the dean's list. And you think, look at that. You didn't have to do all the participatory stuff. You didn't have to do all the party stuff. You resolved that you were there for a purpose, for a season, and God used you while you were there, and you succeeded in the process. Right? If you're at the point in your life now where you're trying to decide if you should navigate Christian bubbledom forever, or if you're going to go into the real world and you're scared that success means losing your values, you can be successful in the real world and be a Christian. You resolve. You get willing to sacrifice. You might not make, be successful because you're a Christian. You, you go in as a, as a missionary, and you see what God does. Because God needs people at every strata of society. He needs, his, he needs his people on the streets. 
He needs his people in the churches. He needs his people in the nonprofits. He needs his people in the justice sector. He needs his people in the business world. He needs his people in the arts community. He needs his people at every strata of every sector, of every space, in every country and city of the planet. He, he needs you wherever he wants to put you. But if you are somewhere, you have to know it's because God has put you in that place. And God gives Daniel the assignment of changing the culture of a pagan nation by giving him the brain to help him to get recruited to Babylon and giving him the brain and the resolve and all that it takes to rise to the top of Babylonian society and giving him the favor to stand before the king and not get murdered several times even though he, he would not let go of his faith no matter how hard the Babylonians tried to grip it, rip it from his fingertips. And Daniel brought this pattern of resolve and sacrifice and missions thinking throughout his entire tenure there in that foreign country. He outlived Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He lived through the reign of three kings. And he built a reputation for himself and for his God in that place. I love that. Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar several times and said, kill me if you need to, but here's how it is. Who can interpret this dream for me? Daniel says, well, kill me if you need to, but here's what I see. Daniel and his friends, they say, kill us if you need to, but we're not bowing to that God, right? And so they start saying things like, well, maybe your God can save you. And then his, their God does save them. And they're like, what happened? Over and over and over again. Read chapters one through four of Daniel this week. It's crazy. By the end, Daniel's on his third king. And he's about to get thrown into the lion's den. And that time when they're throwing him into the lion's den, the king says, Daniel, hopefully your God will save you again. It's like he's got this reputation. And over and over and over again, Daniel's resolve, his sacrifice, his missions, thinking gets him into a place that when he stands up for what he believes in and he faces death, king after king after king comes to a place where they say, I think your God is the real one. By the time Cyrus is in power, he's so enamored with the Christians that he let, or the Jewish folks that he lets them go back to their country, bring their things, and go and rebuild their own land again. God put Daniel on this mission to go and transform the world from the heart of darkness and back again. If we're looking for ways to raise our kids along the lines of these principles, I've said the, the three things before. Number one, let's teach our kids resolve. Let's teach our kids to stand up for what they believe in, whether it's standing up for their faith or standing up for, against bullies, right, or just standing up in general, not to just go with the flow, but, but resolve. Teach our kids that sometimes doing the right thing takes sacrifice. When you give your money to charity, you have less money. When you give your money to the kid who doesn't have a lunch, now you can't buy yourself a lunch. Sometimes doing the right thing takes sacrifice. Teach our kids that they go into the world as missionaries. It's not just go to college and hope you don't die. <laughs> it's we're sending you to college, or God is sending you to college because he's putting you in a place where his spirit can work through you to change the world around you. Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Just by our very existence in a place, we transform the thing. And yet the challenge for us is to let our light shine actively before men so they may see our good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Teach our kids they're missionaries. Finally, we teach our kids that wherever we go, God goes with us. 
I love the beginning of the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar comes in looking for kids who are of royal seed. You know, throughout this chapter, there's this idea that the seed of God lives in Daniel, like the blood of the king of all kings flows through Daniel's veins. And the same thing is true to us. Wherever we go, God is with us. His spirit dwells in us, those of us who believe in Christ. And so when we walk into a place, whether it's a, a Christian place or not a Christian place, the God of the universe dwells in us and with us and is using us in that moment to transform the pace for his glory if we submit to him, if we're resolved to live for him, if we link our brains with his mission and say, let's lean into this thing, God uses us along the way. You know, we don't know what our kids are going to turn into. We catch glimpses every once in a while. But God has a plan for each and every one of us and our kids and our grandkids that involves sending them out into scary places in the world and using them to do mighty things. And he has that same plan for us. So as we think about developing this mindset for our kids, it's not just about our kids, it's about us too. So I want to take a moment today, I want us to pray for our kids, for our grandkids, for this next generation, and for ourselves, that God would use us in these places we go to change them, to transform them for his name. Let's pray together.